Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Loeb. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Loeb is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. 1 Peter chapter 3, and in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you can find that on page 1016. If you were with us last week, then you'll remember that we've come to a section that is, is very challenging to divide uh, into one clear unit. So there's too much to cover all at once, but taking each individual paragraph uh, would not quite be enough. And so we took the first two-thirds of it last week, which leaves us the last paragraph for this morning. Uh, but based on what we find here, I think we're going to have more than enough material to occupy our time. As Peter draws connections this morning, between Jesus' suffering and our suffering, and between Jesus' victory and our victory. And so we're in 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to pick up beginning in verse 18. He writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. And so over the last few weeks, Peter has been explaining what it looks like, what it should look like, for Christians to live as God's new covenant people, with an, an emphasis on living honorably in the sight of the watching world. And so last week, Peter talked about how we should relate to one another within the membership of the local church. And he gave some, some instructions about how to navigate conflict and persecution. And we left with, with Peter's statement in verse 17, that it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And as I mentioned last week, that might seem upside down to us at first, because if I'm going to suffer, I would much rather have done something wrong to deserve it uh, than, to, than to suffer uh, unjustly. Uh, but in God's eyes, it is always better to do the right thing, even if that leads us into hardship as a result. Well, now as we pick up in verse 18, Peter explains even further when he writes, "...for," which connects this to what he just said, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And so as we are called to be willing to suffer in the process of obeying God, Peter points us to Jesus. And he reminds us that Jesus also suffered in the process of obedience. And when Peter says that Jesus suffered once, he doesn't mean that Jesus only had one experience of suffering in his whole life, because as we know, Jesus suffered in many ways throughout his life, but he's focusing specifically on the suffering that Jesus experienced in his death on the cross for us, right? the, the righteous for the unrighteous. As we mentioned last week, Jesus is the only person in all of human history who was morally perfect, who, who never did anything wrong in his thoughts, his words, or his actions. He is the only person who genuinely did not deserve to experience suffering of any kind. And yet, 
he willingly fulfilled God's plan for our salvation, which necessarily required him to experience suffering, and frankly, on a level that is beyond our ability to comprehend. Because on the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God that we deserve to receive for our sins. And he did that so that we didn't have to bear the wrath of God for our sin. We can be forgiven and reconciled to God by turning from our sin and trusting in what Jesus has done to save us. As as we've already seen, from eternity past, God had a plan to save his people, and Jesus was willing to suffer in order to make that happen. And and Peter's point is that if Jesus was willing to do that, then there's no act or, or level of opposition or difficulty that should keep us from obeying him in our own lives. And that way, Jesus is both our example and our motivation. Now, at the end of verse 18, we see that our salvation was accomplished by Jesus being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And that's where things begin to go fuzzy. Uh, There are a number of interpretive difficulties to navigate here, because Peter says that it was in this Spirit that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. And this is one of the most confusing and debated statements in the entire New Testament. Uh, Peter's language that he he uses here is, is ambiguous, which opens the door for a number of different interpretations. And then each of those interpretations can be further subdivided among a variety of variations. And so we trust that what Peter is saying was was clear to his original readers, but it's no longer entirely clear to us. Uh, I think even the, the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther, who seemed to have an opinion about everything, Uh, nevertheless threw his hands up at this verse and admitted, I don't know what Peter is saying here. Now, given the number of interpretive options that there are, uh, the amount of time that we have this morning, and my general estimate of your interest level, we are not going to go uh, option by option to, to look at all of the different possibilities. I'm just going to explain to you what I think Peter is saying here. And so as we proceed, I want to acknowledge that I could be wrong. Uh, my, my view is not the majority view, which always makes me uncomfortable. Uh, I think it's a, a growing view, but most biblical scholars, at least for right now, would disagree with at least part of what I'm going to say. But I'm going to try to put the pieces together, and then if you want to talk more about it later, as always, we can certainly do that, or I can point you to further resources for additional study. And at the end of the day, the good news is that however you fit the details together, Peter's point, that the, the main idea, is still clear uh, no matter what. And we'll see that in just a moment. All right, so for starters, we see in verses 19 and 20 that we have spiritual beings in prison who were disobedient in the days of Noah. And of course, I, I assume that most of you are probably already familiar with the story of Noah's ark. Uh, When Adam and Eve are expelled from the Garden of Eden, uh, they have children who have children who have children, and the human population grows and expands over time. But the damage has already been done. People, all people, now have a a naturally rebellious human nature against the Lord. And and the Bible tells us that the, the earth was full of violence. 
And so the Lord determines to execute judgment by sending a flood. It is going to rain nonstop for 40 days and 40 nights, and everyone and everything is going to die. But a man named Noah found favor. He found grace with the Lord. And so God instructed him to build a giant boat, an ark, so that that Noah and his wife and their three sons and their wives, along with representative numbers of animals, could be on the ark to survive and then start things over again. Right, well, well, leading all... Leading up to this, another part of the problem that we find in Genesis chapter 6 is that the sons of God find the daughters of men attractive and and begin reproducing with them. And among the various interpretations of what is happening there, I think it's clear that the sons of God refer to a group of angels and, and the daughters of men refer to a group of women. And so not only are these relationships inappropriate violations of God's created design, they're they're also threatening to interfere with God's plan to bring redemption through the seed of the woman, as he promised to do in Genesis chapter 3. And so I think that these angels are the spirits that Peter refers to here as being in prison because of their disobedience in the days of Noah. Uh, just a couple of additional texts that may shed some light on this. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, again, in the context of referring to Noah, Peter writes, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. In Jude 6, we read, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And so so with this understanding, the flood was God's judgment against guilty humanity, and this spiritual imprisonment was God's judgment against these guilty angels. And, And so obviously we know from the New Testament that there are still a number of demons who are active today. Uh, In fact, we we read in Luke chapter 6 about a group of demons who begged Jesus to send them into a herd of pigs rather than sending them to spiritual prison. And so not all evil angels have been imprisoned, uh, but the actions of of the particular angels in Genesis 6 led to them being imprisoned until the day of judgment. So it's to these spirits that Jesus went and proclaimed, and next we have to determine what he proclaimed. What did Jesus say to them? Was this good news? Was this bad news? Is he trying to contact them regarding their extended warranty? What is going on here? And without any specific details, I think that the context favors a a proclamation of Jesus' victory over the powers of evil. In other words, despite their actions, God's promises have been kept, Jesus has accomplished his mission, and the seed of the woman has, in fact, defeated the serpent, and them as well by extension. So in Colossians 2.15, we read that, that God disarmed the rulers and authorities, meaning demonic and angelic powers, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. And so as one scholar puts it, I think that this moment of proclamation is essentially Jesus spiking the football in in celebration of his victory over his enemies. And he he announces this for all to hear. 
So we have the who and we have the what, and now we need to determine the when. When did this happen? And this is probably the trickiest aspect of the passage to understand. Uh, We go back to the phrase now in verse 18 that Jesus was made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed. And so the majority view is that this is referring to sometime after the resurrection, after Jesus is raised back to life by the Holy Spirit. Uh, At some point he goes to this spiritual prison and declares his victory over these evil angels. But I am inclined to think that Peter is actually referring to what is known as the descent of Christ to the dead. And so we know that that Jesus was crucified and he was buried on a Friday afternoon and that he was then raised early on a Sunday morning. And I think that what Peter is referring to is what happens in between that time, the the time between Jesus' death and resurrection. So he was put to death in the flesh, but alive in the spirit, and his spirit descended to hell. Uh, And when we say that, we don't mean to, to suggest that Jesus suffered in hell in any way, but again, to declare his victory over Satan and his demons. And so quickly, and and no doubt oversimplifying to an extent, let me give you two reasons why I think this is what Peter is teaching. First of all, the New Testament consistently refers to Jesus as being raised from the dead. Not from death, although that is true, but from the dead. And, And the issue here is that death is a noun. It is a state of being. Whereas dead is an adjective that describes another word, although it can be used as a noun. And so when the New Testament teaches that Jesus was raised from the dead, it's not simply saying that Jesus was was raised up from a state of being dead. It's saying that he was raised from among those who are dead, which I would take to imply that he was at one point among them. Jesus was among the dead. And so uh, when Jesus died, his body was buried and his spirit went to the underworld. But unlike anyone who had ever gone before him, Jesus goes to the place of the dead in in confidence that through his own death, he has defeated death. And so he announces that for all to hear. And then secondly, uh, one of the primary Old Testament verses that is applied to Jesus in the New Testament is Psalm 1610 which says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. So so Sheol is is one of the names that you find in the Old Testament to refer to the place of the dead. And, And David, ultimately pointing forward to the Messiah, declares in this verse that God will not abandon him to Sheol, which again, I think, implies that the Messiah will be there at some point. You can't really abandon someone in a place that they've never been to. And so again, I think Peter means for us to understand that when Jesus died, he went to the place of the dead with the full confidence that God the Father would raise him again on the third day, which he announced for all to hear. Now, I can see that you are all sitting on the edge of your seat. This is fascinating you, but you're also wondering what this has to do with anything. We're going to get to that uh, in just a moment, but first, Peter's going to make a connection between this reality and the meaning of baptism as we pick up again, beginning in verse 21. He writes, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, 
but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And so as we pick up again in verse 21, Peter draws out a parallel from what he has been talking about. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. And in case you haven't already had enough in, in the first section of the passage, there, there's even more for us to sort through here. And so first of all, we need to think about what Peter means when he tells us that baptism corresponds to or typifies God's salvation of Noah through the ark. And as we do that, I think it's helpful for us to understand that throughout the Bible, water is often used as an image, it's often symbolic of God's judgment. Right? Now, certainly, we've, we've already seen water being used as, as a metaphor or, or an instrument of God's judgment, as we've discussed the flood with Noah here in the passage. But we also see it in other places as well. And so, for example, in the Exodus, as the Israelites make their way to the Red Sea and, and Pharaoh's army is pressing down on them, God parts the sea and he allows his people to go through the water in order to reach the other side. And then he causes the sea to fall back in judgment over Pharaoh's army as they attempt to go in after them. Uh, in the Psalms, the imagery of waves and high water are often used to refer to God's judgment. You can even think about Jonah, who, who is plunged into the water as, a, as an act of God's judgment for his disobedience. And then he calls out to the Lord in repentance and is delivered from the water through the intervention of the great fish. Right, water and judgment are often paired in the Bible. And we've even seen before in Revelation 21 that in the Apostle John's vision of the new heavens and the new earth, he says that the sea was no more. And among other things, that, that means, either literally or metaphorically, that, that sin and its effects will no longer exist when God makes all things new. And so by extension, there will be no more need for God's judgment. And so when Peter says that baptism corresponds to this, he means that among other things, baptism portrays us being saved out of judgment. Right? As we go down into the water, we don't stay there. Right, that the waters of judgment do not hold us down. We are brought back up out of the water. And God provided an ark to deliver Noah and his family through water in judgment. And now he has provided Jesus to deliver those who will trust in him from final judgment. And just as Jesus died and rose again, our baptism portrays us being united with him so that we experience his salvation through judgment. But not only does baptism correspond to salvation through judgment in the Old Testament, but Peter also says that it saves us, which, as you probably know, is a fairly strong statement. Uh, and certainly there are those who believe that baptism does save us or that at least contributes something to our salvation. And this is one of the verses where you, you could get that idea, even though the rest of the New Testament is clear that we are saved by grace through faith alone. But even here, upon closer inspection, we notice that when Peter says that baptism saves us, he makes it clear in the second half of verse 21 that, that this is not as a removal of dirt from the body. In other words, baptism is, is not like a spiritual bath. Right? It, doesn't, it doesn't do anything to us on its own. 
Instead, he says that baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience. So when we become aware of our sin, we have a guilty conscience. We recognize that that we deserve to receive God's judgment for our sin, and and we, we are very aware of that. And so in baptism, Peter says we appeal to God for a good conscience. We're asking him through baptism uh, to save us, to forgive us, to cleanse us from our sin. And so um, what we need to understand is that for the early church, baptism was the way a person made a profession of faith in the gospel. They didn't necessarily walk an aisle. There wasn't necessarily an aisle to walk. Uh, They didn't say a a sinner's prayer, so-called. They expressed their faith in the gospel by submitting themselves to baptism. And in fact, as we see here, that the symbol and what it signifies are so closely united together that in the New Testament, to refer to one is to assume the other. And so, so oftentimes the New Testament will refer to our baptism as salvation. And if it refers to someone who is a believer, you can assume that that person has been baptized. And so don't be confused by what to us comes across as a strong statement. Peter fully endorses uh, the the doctrine of justification by faith alone. He's already made that clear in this letter. He simply assumes that faith in Jesus is going to be expressed through the act of baptism, which in turn symbolizes Christ's victory through his life, death, and resurrection. Now this leads us finally into verse 22 where Peter reminds us that Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. That is, Jesus told his disciples when he gave them the great commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And I think at this point, finally, if if we zoom back to look at the big picture of what Peter is saying here, his main idea in the whole passage becomes clear. Peter is encouraging his readers to persevere in following Jesus in the midst of suffering and persecution. And, and, And he is doing that by pointing them to Jesus. And we are reminded here that Jesus suffered in his obedience to God. Again, beyond our ability to understand in ways that, that, that don't even compare to, to the things that we experience. But the key that is important for us to understand and what we see here is that Jesus' suffering ultimately led to total victory. Total victory over the powers of Satan, sin, and death. And Peter's point is that because Jesus has conquered all of his enemies— we can know that that we, our own suffering, will end in victory as well. And so you could think of this a lot like D-Day in World War II. You know, once the Allies successfully invaded France on D-Day, there were definitely still some battles to be fought. There were many losses to still endure. But the war had definitively shifted. And as long as the Allies didn't give up, it was just a matter of time before they achieved and experienced final victory. And in the same way, when Jesus said on the cross that it is finished, he meant it. Jesus has conquered over every power in heaven and on earth. He has decisively defeated every enemy that stands against him and his kingdom. And now, as the church fulfills the Great Commission, there are still many battles to be fought. There are are still hardships and sufferings for us to experience. 
But church, as long as we don't give up, it is just a matter of time before we experience the the final victory. That's Peter's word in this passage, and it should be very encouraging to us this morning. In in our passage, Peter is making a connection between Jesus' suffering and our own suffering, between Jesus' victory and our victory. You see that Jesus suffered for us, and now we are called to suffer for him, but because Jesus conquered through his suffering, we can know that our suffering ultimately ends in victory as well. And, And we are reminded of this freshly every time we get to celebrate baptism as a church. You know, sometimes life is, is kind of like running a marathon. Uh, it, it gets hard, we're tired, we're hurting, we really would just like to give up. But, but in this text, Peter is, is like one of those people standing on the sideline, holding out cups of water or Gatorade or, or gel packs, and he's, he's, he's encouraging us as we run, keep going. You're going to make it. Don't give up. Here, take this. This will help you. There are people that we encounter and there are experiences that we endure that wear us down in life, that can tempt us to doubt the Lord and what he's doing or to get bitter and give up altogether. But in his word, God gives us the promise that our suffering ends in the joy of victory. And so as we go through our darkest moments, whether our suffering is simply the result of living in this fallen world or whether it's the result of persecution, we can push forward because we know that suffering is going to end in glory. And that encouragement can can fuel us to keep going when life is difficult. We, we, We push forward because we know that our own suffering ends in the glory the the imperishable inheritance that Peter talked about back in chapter 1. And so as we've heard God's word this morning, wherever we are, let's be encouraged and sustained by his truth, and let's take the next step of obedience wherever that leads us. Let's pray together.